start talking now? So, sorry, 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 start, start talking, talking now, guys. guys. Can you hear me, oh, Steve? Oh, Jeff. This is Steve. Yeah, Kevin's here. None of our listeners can hear the audio um, streaming. They can hear us, but there's a double echo audio somewhere. Uh. For those of you watching, um, are you still getting the double audio echoes? So for, let me just give you guys a heads up of what's going on. Um, we have a new machine that we've been working with and, oh, it's working now, cool. Um, can you go ahead and talk, Steve? Are you guys able to hear Steve? Testing, testing, hello, everybody. Good to go? No, all clean, all good, cool. All right, I think we're good. Um, so let's backtrack a little bit, see if we can get through this. Um, I apologize, Steve. I know you're busy, uh, busy with things. Um, can you just recap for those? Um, you got started in astronomy. You were into software, and that's kind of how you segued into it. Yeah, yeah. It's a take two, right? This is Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> anyway, yeah. In the uh, late seventies, I got my first computer, and I really got into it. And then uh, I bought an IBM PC in the early eighties, and really got into computer programming. I just loved it. Um, and astronomy was a hobby at the time, so um, marrying the two together um, was a, a, a logical thing. So I, I was laid up in bed from a knee injury, and I, uh, that's when I, I remember starting this guy astronomy software and just typing in equations and stuff from um, Duffet Smith's books and that sort of thing, and um, had to uh, play a lot with the graphics because back then there wasn't much graphic support. So it was really difficult to even just put a dot on the screen, um, but stuck with it. And then uh, in um, released the first version in 1983. And then in uh, September of 84, took out the first ad in Sky and Telescope uh, under the, the business name of Computer Assist Services. And uh, I remember the, the ad cost about 250 bucks. And, and I think I sold $500 of the software. So I thought, hey, you know, this might work. So, um, so that's the birth of obviously the the Sky software. Um, at what I mean, you guys are really known for the Sky, and then we had I'm not, I think there was the Sky Five, then there was Six, and then I think you guys came out with X, um, which is available now. Um, but our 
when did you guys get around to what you're really well known for now? Of course, that's your equatorial and now Altaz mounts, I believe you guys have too. When did the creation of the, the paramounts become a thing? Well, it was in the early 90s when we were um, trying to adapt our software to um, things like the, um, well, I won't um, have name company names, but to a lot of the commercially available stuff out there. And we were trying to um, do, you know, automation type things where you could set up a queue of things and have it run all night. And, you know, most of the mounts out there just couldn't point or track well enough to do that. Um, and so we were young enough and foolish enough to think, hey, we can build a, a robotic telescope mount. And so we started on it. And then uh, at the 1996 um, Santa Barbara Software Based Imaging Conference, we um, debuted the, the first Paramount along with Orchestrate and T Point. And, you know, T Point and Orchestrate were necessary for doing the, the type of automation that we wanted to do. Um, so it was kind of, it was born out of the fact that, um, you know, the, uh, having a mount track good enough to do a couple minutes unguided at that point in time, just they didn't exist, period. So we um, created it for, for those purposes. Matt, what was the first generation of the Paramount? Was that the, you guys called it the GT or was that's like yeah. an older silver mount? Yep, the Olberts, yeah, they all, it was kind of anodized to gray, bluish gray, um, and that was the GT 1100. And um, we sold those for a couple of years and then we um, changed the design a bit, put the gear up front for more stability so it could handle more weight and then sold those for a couple of years. And then in about 99, we decided to go much bigger and we um, uh, bought, we rented a machining facility and we bought some machines and actually started making um, all the parts rather than job shopping them. And is that, um, for those of you who are maybe, unless you live under a rock, then don't know about uh, software BISC's uh, capabilities, you guys are 100% based in Golden, Colorado. Um, that's where everything is actually made. So all the mounts are designed, built, and, you know, machined there in-house, which I think is kind of cool. So, um, but so then you guys came out with the Paramount ME. And was that kind of the first full in-house mount at that point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, uh, at the time, we didn't know that much about the machining part of things. Um, we ended up hiring a fellow named Rob Miller, who was really good at, uh, at, at machining and, and he was also familiar with astronomy. So that was kind of our start into it. And um, he did the, um, he took the Paramount GT1100S, which was the, the second version of it, and, um, you know, kind of cleaned it up and made it all, you know, just a much nicer looking mount. Of course, it was, had a lot more parts, and I think it had um, 450 fasteners in it. So some parts of it might have been a little bit overboard, but um, it still, it functioned well. And at the time, um, in the early, you know, part of the, you know, 2000, 2001, there was not a lot of competition for high-end robotic telescope mounts, um, especially with full software integration. So we enjoyed a period where we were um, very unique and um, you know, it was, it was nice uh, to be in that position. Yeah, uh, I remember years ago when you would look at you know, New Mexico skies and stuff like that, all the, the, at the time there weren't as many remote 
you know, robotic remote sites for equipment. But anytime you would see some serious imager, usually with an RCOS on it, it was nine times out of 10, it was a Paramount ME that those were sitting on. And I, even to this day, the, the ME is still a high caliber mount. And I think you guys have actually done upgrades to it to kind of bring it up to like the USB, modern USB connections and stuff, um, I think as well. Yes, uh, we've, we've tried to make them, you know, so that they can still be operational. And I think most of the, the Era 01 uh, MEs are still, you know, in operation. We've got a, you can put our new control system in it. Um, you kind of have to take out a lot of the wiring and, and that sort of thing. But um, if you get the new control system, you're kind of up to date and you're using our, what we call the MKS 5000, which is our current shipping um, control board. So. Um. So after the ME, uh, you guys have, it evolved a little bit. I believe it was the MX that came after that. And then the MX, was it the ME2 that followed suit or was it the Mighty or I know there's a, the MX pluses in there too. So. Yeah, so we, because we were still shipping the original version of the ME, we, um, we did the MX next and then, um, we used some smaller motors in there and we liked the bigger motors that we found better. So that's what became the MX plus a year or two later. But, um, but then, yeah, we did the, the ME2, um, which upped the weight capacity and, and um, made a lot of things. It was, it's easier to manufacture than the original ME. Um, and then following all that was the Mighty. So. If you guys are looking like for the ultimate field mount, the mighty is killer. So just an FYI. Um, so I think what's kind of neat, maybe people don't know this because it's more of an internal disc. It's not like a secret or anything, but it's a family business. It's you and your brothers that essentially have kind of grown disc uh, to what it is. Uh, and there's, there's you, and then you've got your three other brothers that are all a part of the company as well. And then obviously some of your kids are involved in it now. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah. So there's me, and then Tom, Dan, Matt, and age order, um, and then my daughter Sarah has been working here for I think seven or eight years now. Um, so yeah, there's a a lot of family here, um, and many of the people that work here have been here for close to 20 years too. So it's been a pretty consistent. I mean, one of the, especially with software development, one of the really um, big strengths is having that cohesiveness, or you know the the same people working on the code for all those years. It's so hard to keep a good programming team together, um, especially in this day and age where they can go to certain places and make you know, a lot more than we make here. Um, but uh, sticking together and, and that sort of thing has been helpful for, for creating the sky and, and the paramounts. That's, I think it's kind of cool that, I know there's a lot of people watching that would appreciate A, you're a US-based company and B, you're a family company. So that, that kind of brings a special, you know, bond to that as well. But I think a lot of people can appreciate the, the amount of work that you and your brothers have put into making this legacy essentially of the Paramounts and the sky and definitely advancing the hobby forward and giving the world some of the best mounts ever produced in my opinion. So um, I think it's really neat that you guys still continue that um, as a family moving, which I'm sure brings its own set of challenges when you've got four brothers running a company, but you know, that's yeah. every company's gonna be its own thing. But. 
Yeah, it used to sometimes come to blows, but now we're too old for that stuff. So. <laughs> There's no taking it out in the parking lot anymore. So, no, no. Um, so you guys have done equatorials for a long time. And if you guys aren't familiar with it, most of the Paramounts, I don't know about the GT model, but they've all been belt drive systems, which I think a lot, you know, Skywatcher, we now have belt drive. And I think a lot of that came from inspiration from the way the Paramount, now you see a lot of the more affordable mounts that are belt drive um, equatorials, which is kind of neat that you guys in a way spearheaded some of that technology, but now you've even shifted to the next generation, um, which is the direct drive. I know you guys have been uh, tampering with that. And I think the mount is available now. I know it's a high caliber mount, but um, is that something you guys are, have moved into now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the gear driven systems, I mean, every, when you're designing something, you just realize that every aspect of it is a compromise of, of something or another, you know, and be it cost or machine time or, the type the stock material that you're using um but uh the, the gear driven systems are fantastic for lower cost um and you know getting them to the point gear, gear belt you know it, it is belt and you know the worm gear system um after making um you know perhaps ten thousand of those gears in the last uh 25 years um we've got it down real good and we know when something's wrong and we know how to fix it and so they, they work really well for um, being able to make an effective system that can be through t-point and training the the tech um can be uh where you can go say five minutes unguided i mean that's a a, a lofty goal but um it can be done now one of the things about the the worms and the gears is there is a mechanical contact point um, and we actually spring load you know the two together um so that there's the, the backlash is negligible um but there there will be wear and we have um you know replaced some worms in mounts that have been in a in a dusty sandy area um running you know most clear nights for 15 years and, and you know there's a bunch of wear on the, on the worms so um the a lot of the professionals now and a lot of telescope companies are moving towards what's called direct drive where you actually got a um, instead of having a little motor geared up 5,000 to one, you have a, a just a big motor um, with big magnets and, and, and it's right on axis. And then you um, put a on axis encoder on there um, and that senses, you know, where the big motor is. And so there's no touch parts touching for the drive system. Um, you know, the disadvantages are they can be quite expensive. It is hard to get a lot of torque out of them i mean without spending a lot um but the advantages are you know it should should last we, we, we won't know for 20 years if it's going to last as long as a paramount gear driven but um you know they should last for a long time and the backlash is minimal the you can get exceptional tracking out of it there's um one of the other challenges for the direct drive is tuning a system um, depending on the <clears throat> amount of mass of the system and the inertia of the system and any resonances within it you know, there's tuning that you have to do, um, which is something, you know, we, you never even have to worry about with um, any of our gear driven systems or, or rarely have to worry about. But, but yeah, so we've got um, uh, a few different models now of uh, direct drive systems. Um, 
we started out with the Alpaz, and so we've got the Apollo 600 and the Apollo 800, and um, the 600 can hold you know up to about 400 pounds, and the 800 up to about 800 pounds. Um, and, and these take some you know real big uh, direct drive motors with a considerable amount of torque. And then we we've also adapted the direct drive um, drives to our uh, equatorial fork mounts. Uh, so, and um, we've been asked before, you know, asked, are you going to uh, try to make the smaller mounts direct drive? And we'd like to, you know, I mean, if uh, if we can get the figure out how to get the cost down, um, we don't know how to do that right now. You know, there's a bit too much cost, but I mean, there is some, you know, definite advantages to to the direct drive. But again, um, the gear driven systems are just much easier to produce, and the the results that they can produce are not a huge, you know, hugely different as far as um, unguided tracking time and that sort of thing, but you have to train the tech and you have to do a few more technical things to, to eke that sort of performance out of a gear-driven system. Sure, yeah, I know the paramounts that I've had the pleasure of owning and using. Um, I know a Paramount Mighty with the Esprit 100, we've done 10 minute unguided all night, no problem. And um, the other system with the Esprit 150 at a thousand millimeter, Five minute unguided with a MX was and is no problem once you've taken the time to set it up correctly. So if you're looking for everyone nowadays wants to do unguided work and they constantly call us and ask us why our EQ6R can't do five minutes unguided, that's because you have a mount that just doesn't have all the brains and capabilities. Um, that the there's a big difference between a fifteen hundred dollar mount and a seven thousand dollar mount so keep your expectations in the ballpark please so um steve i have some people asking if you could turn your mic up a little bit so um i guess i i would not know exactly how to do that um is there anything on the zoom screen um it might be if you're on a laptop it might be at the bottom right corner under the audio i mean i can turn up my Speaker, but let me see. If not, well, we can work with it. So, okay. Um, well, I can I can try to talk a little bit louder, but I mean I've got a, a speaker control, but I guess I don't know where my microphone control is. That's all right. Well, well, you know we're thirty minutes into it already, and we've already had enough hiccups on our end. I appreciate you being so understanding about today. So, oh, no problem. Um. So one thing that Skywatcher has done recently is we put an on-axis encoder on one of our larger mounts, but that's something that you guys have been doing for a while. And I think there's, it's not super clear. I know a lot of people ask for, oh, we want on-axis encoders. And you do see some more of the affordable mounts having that at, at an expense. But it seems like there's a good chunk of people that might not actually understand what that extra jump uh, in prices because if you look at like your Paramount ME2 has the on-axis encoders and the price difference is several thousand dollars. And mm -hmm. I don't know that, I think people think it's made to do one thing, but in reality it's made to do another. I didn't know if you could kind of explain in more of an alignment's terms of what are the advantage of having these high res on-axis encoders? Well, well, yeah, one of the misconceptions is that 
if you have those, then it's going to take care of all the issues of, of guiding and, and, and tracking and pointing and everything, but that's just simply not the case. And for anybody that uses T-Point, um, you can, you know, after you do a T-Point run, which goes out and um, does a, a calibration with the stars in the sky, which are perfect and measures the errors, you know, when you slew to those stars, um, you'll, you know, what you'll find is there's usually 10 to 15 error terms that are significant that must be um, corrected. And, you know, um, some of those go away with the on-axis encoders, but not all of them go away. For example, if you have tube flexure, you know, the on-axis encoders can't help that. Um, you know, your, your polar misalignment, um, you know, and even the, the on-axis encoders, which, you know, some of them are, you know, like the ones we use in the Apollo are 26-bit, um, so they're 0 0.02 arc seconds. Um, you know, so they're, they're super high resolution, but if, if the encoder is mounted two thousands off, there's going to be a harmonic, you know, which will manifest itself in the screen as maybe 30 arc seconds or arc minute or something like that. So the error terms that are determined by T-point and corrected by T-point are more important, you know, in, in the case of um, like a, a mighty, then, you know, if we had an on-axis encoder on there, the main thing it would do is eliminate the need for um, training the periodic error, but um, it's not going to make a huge difference in the rest of it. Um, and you know, it, it 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 is nice, especially if it's an absolute encoder. Then you can start up; you don't have to home the mount. The homing doesn't take that long, but and you don't have to train the periodic error. But um, as far as getting down to um, arc second tracking for uh, five minutes, um, if you don't take into account all those other things, which are generally much bigger than the, um, you know, the errors that you're getting in your in the encoder system versus the on-axis encoders, um, you know, the, the, the benefit uh, may not be as great as you expect. So um, it, it certainly it certainly cleans things up. I mean, like, like I say, sometimes um, on an ME, you might have 15 error terms that um, it's taking care of uh, harmonics and flexors and polar misalignment and the um, axes not being perpendicular and that sort of thing. And with the on-axis encoders, you know, a lot of times then you'll have 10 terms or eight terms instead of 15 terms. So it, it cleans it up, but uh, the thing about the um, T-point and the ProTrack is it does a good job of mopping up all, all those little errors and, and, you know, fixing them while you're pointing and tracking. And I know the big advantage in real world um, is those those absolute encoders, the on-axis encoders, um, are really beneficial for longer focal length systems, which is probably why you guys have them in as an option for the larger mounts, because you're going to probably put, be putting a, you know, 16, 17, 20 inch, you know, 24 maybe on some of these systems and imaging at several thousand millimeter focal length, where something like a Mighty, um, okay, you put a C11 on it, but the minute you pop those encoders on there, as many of you might see, is the mounts go up several thousand dollars. So it's kind of a, is it worth, I, I'm sure this has been brought up with FISC, is, is it worth making something like a Mighty with those encoders for the amount of money that you would spend on it? Are you getting the true advantages of that capability? So is it worth that? 
as opposed to having it on like an ME2. Right. And, you know, the encoder technologies, you know, there seem to be some coming out that are getting, you know, low, a bit lower. Um, I, they haven't quite reached the point where I think you could stick them in in the mighty. I mean, you could, but like you say, it's going to raise the price enough that you're going to have to do your own cost benefit analysis. Um, but uh, I, I'm hoping that, you know, the technologies will continue to, to improve and it, it's something that you can have on, on the less expensive mounts in the future. Sure. I know you guys are always pushing forward on that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, it's, you guys are the head of a lot of that. So I will leave it to you to discover all those cool nifty things. Um, some other um, cool things that, one thing that I think is really neat if you guys haven't seen it, it's called the helium tripod. Um, I have thankful to actually have one of them, but um, Steve, I think you designed, this was like your little pet project and it's remarkably lightweight, but it holds a ton of weight. Um, do you wanna talk about like what your, how you approach designing something like that? If you guys haven't seen the helium tripod, go to BISC's website and check it out. It's like 14 pounds and holds like 200 and something pounds of weight. But that was kind of your little side project for a while, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and uh, I was, well, I, I started to design, I mean, tripods, you know, we, I, I did the pyramid portable pier and then we did the mighty tripod and they're both very stable. Um, but like the pyramid, um, is difficult to machine. I mean, it's just got a lot of odd machining um, operations because of the triangles and, and, and that sort of thing. And so um, I was trying to make a lighter weight one and yeah, the, the, the helium turned out great in a lot of aspects, but not on the first try. Um, it, was, it was definitely uh, one of those things that I iterated and iterated and iterated. Um, but the, the benefit is it's really easy to manufacture compared and assemble compared to the uh, like the pyramid um, and it collapses um, so I, I yeah I like the design a lot I mean it's a little bit it's a little it kind of came out I mean I've, I've seen a lot of the old uh, survey tripods which used the um, double legs top and bottom that collapse together um, but um, for this particular um, you know tripod there's a bunch of a bunch of places where the, the machining became really critical. You say, well, why would that be? But, um, you know, where if we, if things are not machined within, you know, maybe two or three, four thousandth of an inch, then the thing just doesn't function the way that it should. Um, so, um, you know, there's a few critical areas like that, but outside of it, it's just something that's, um, uh, like I say, easier to machine, assemble, and um, and out in the field, it works. I think it works great. And yeah, the, the lightness is, I, I think, one of the big benefits. I remember getting mine at, yeah, I think you brought it to AIC, actually. Um, but yeah, we, I've shown it to several people. And even if you don't want to own one, the minute you see one in person, it's like a work of art as far as a machinist perspective on it, because it's it's impressive and beautifully done. I know I have a friend of mine who's adapted his EQ8 uh, to it and he uses it for outreach events because it's so much faster because it doesn't weigh anything. Um, but it's it's definitely worth uh, checking out. Um, I know where is I, one question I have for you is where do you see BISC going in the future? I know there's all every company's always got something you know in the works and obviously being in the industry, I know we can't talk about 90% of those, but where do you envision 
you guys heading next now that you know direct drives are a thing and uh, such? Uh, continuing to you know um, improve the software. I mean that's something that uh, is I'm sure will be a lifelong endeavor. Um, you know we've uh, there's there's some holes in in what our software can and can't do. You know I mean so we we need to fill those holes. Um, and as far as you know the mounts go. We're always, uh, like I say, keeping our eyes open for new technologies like, uh, you know, cheaper encoders, um, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the Fusion, uh, which is kind of a, a, well, it's a box where you stick the computer in, um, you know, incorporating that or making it a, an option that slides in, you know, nicely with the, the various mounts, I, I think is another direction that we want to go. Um, I don't even know what that is exactly right now, but um, uh, you know, people are <laughs> continuously asking us, you know, well, why don't you just stick the fusion on the Mighty or you know the MX um, type thing? And you know, some people, um, you know, like people that do portable setups and everything, they they like the fusion concept. But some people that have a permanent observatory and um, just running Windows, they don't, you know, it's something that's not that attractive to them. But I still think that um, the way the industry is going, that having for acquisition purposes, not for image processing and that sort of thing, but for acquisition purposes, having a, a, a small box that you can take out. Um, we've also tackled the you know, power distribution, which um, you know is one of those things that can be a real pain. But um, so uh, a fusion uh, takes care of those things, and I, I think you know as we move forward. Um, I think that's going to become more and more popular. Yeah, you see a lot of companies moving towards those little, you know, whether it's yours or Prima Luce Labs or even mm -hmm. something more basic like the the Pegasus power boxes. It's for mounts that don't have the through mount hubs like the Paramounts and some of the bigger mounts. You know, kind of gives that capability there, but. Then the step above, like what you guys and the Prima Luce stuff is doing is the ability to have total control over the system remotely as far as power and switching things on and off and fun stuff like that, which is critical in a remote system. So, mm -hmm. um, I know we're getting to the last 15 odd minutes or so. So if you guys have some questions, now is the time to ask. I know there's some floating around in here. Um, let's see. First question is, um, how do you think technology has changed how we do astronomy? Well, in, in my lifetime, um, just, you know, it, it's remarkable. The first CCD camera we played with was the SBIG SB4. And I remember we spent two hours trying to get a star focused in it, you know, and, and, and but we were happy when we finally did and we were able to take pictures of a small star field. I mean, the, the chip was so small that it was probably a, Five, six, seven, arc minute field of view, um, and you know, visual. I, I used to do a lot more visual, but it, I, I never became somebody that was really good at it. I appreciate the people that go out and you know commit themselves to that, but um, I guess I need more quick feedback. And so, the as the cameras have become so much more sensitive, um, it's it's just amazing to me that, and and now even with light polluted skies. I mean, you can show people all kinds of interesting things in the universe with, you know, two minute exposures. And then when you go to five or 10 minute or a half hour, it's just unbelievable compared to, you know, what we were doing back um, when, when we all started this in the, in the 90s. 
Yeah. Um, another question. Um, you guys write Sky X, and there are multiple versions of Sky X. Uh, for someone who's just at home doing imaging, um, what version of the Sky do you recommend for the average user? Uh, well, you know, we recently kind of rolled our um, the most popular components, what we formerly called add-ons. We still call that in a lot of our literature, but we're we're moving towards um, you know just making different versions of the Sky that have you know, the camera control, um, which we call camera add-on, and then the T-point add-on. Um, you know, if you're, if you, if you want a one-stop shop that can control most of the commercially available devices, we've kind of rolled everything together into what we call the Sky Imaging Edition. Um, and so, um, it is six hundred dollars. So it's it's, um, you know, it, it contains a lot of software in there. Now we've we've also got the Sky Professional Edition, which is about half that in cost. Um, which will control your telescope, um, and you can you can add T point to it, but it doesn't do the camera control. So it kind of depends. I mean, if you've got your own, if, if you're uh, married to a different camera control application, then you wouldn't need the Sky Imaging Edition. But the, the Imaging Edition is really really nice because with the, for example, with the um, ability to control your camera. Um, if you're going to do a T-point calibration run and make your telescope point better, then um, you know you can. It, it will go through and do the entire calibration automated and do the plate solving and you know taking the images and come back and and uh, kind of fix your the pointing of your telescope. So, and then uh, speaking of the sky a little bit further, I think there might be. I think sometimes there's some confusion that the sky is basically it's what you need to run the Paramount, but you can run a lot of things off of the Sky, isn't that correct? Yeah, um, as a matter of fact, we've got a lot more customers um, running other mounts than we do, you know, running just the Sky. So like we we have worked real hard to um, support, you know, as many commercially available devices, devices out there. Um, we support ASCOM, but since we also are on the Mac and Linux, um, we have native support for um, those devices. So, um, you know, ASCOM is um, not available on those other operating systems. Now there is something, you know, I know there's something new that um, um, is intended to, to make that possible. But in, in the meantime, you know, as we add drivers for our software, we always work to try to win Mac Linux. And in our, our Macintosh user base has grown considerably uh, in the last five years. Um, there's a lot of people that, that like to run their systems with the Mac, so. Yeah, so if you guys, I mean, we did a video on it about a month ago about why here at Skywatch we use SkyX um, for testing our stuff because it's all under one window um, rather than, you know, 47 different other softwares running together. So, um, but yeah, if you've got any mount almost, um, the Sky should be able to handle that. Uh, one of the last questions, and I don't know how much of this you want to divulge into, but I'll leave it up to you. It says, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bisk, where do you guys source your chips from, if I may be so bold? I'm curious because several companies I'm in invested in rely on China. Production is crawling and hard to get uh, to due to this. So I don't know how far down that rabbit hole you want to go or not. So. Well, actually, we've had some we've had some of the same kind of problems. I mean, we've right now I think we're through them, but we had a 
considerable hiatus in shipping because of the same sort of thing. And I don't think anybody's immune from it. Um, you know, so we kind of source them just through the lo local board houses. I mean, that, that, that will um, put the boards together. And uh, but at least on one occasion, we had to go and find alternatives um, with a slightly different specification. And it's just extremely painful because, um, you know, if you change anything on a board, you've got to do very rigorous testing. Um, and of course, when you have a hiatus in shipping, um, the, you know, you're not shipping stuff out and money stops coming in. And so this COVID and the, the last couple of years has been challenging for everybody and we definitely were not immune to it. Yeah, I know that's a big thing. A lot of, we've had people call in saying, why aren't you shipping my stuff and blah, 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 blah. Uh, for the record, no one has anything. It's whatever's, you know, coming in is normally going right out the door. And then of course the prices of, I'm sure you guys see it too, aluminum, you know, the big thing I see is the raw materials are but got hit and that's what kind of screwed everything up through the rest of the supply chain at that point. So it starts at the bottom and that's why it affects everybody. It, it's almost has no uh, limitation geographically to where it's made or who you get it from. It all starts at the beginning of the line and affects the rest of the food chain pretty much. So. Yeah, and aluminum, I mean, it's almost doubled in price and uh, you know, there's been supply chain problems with it as well. I mean, we usually are ahead of it, but um, you know, right now there's some, we, we use a, a special type for a couple of the components and um, you know, the, the lead time we last quoted was 20 weeks. Well, we had to find a way out of that because that's, you know, we, we can't wait that long. So, no, it's definitely been tricky. Um, but uh, right now, you know, we're we just in the last three weeks started um, eating down our, our backlog and we're trying really hard to get our backlog um, out the door by the end of the year. So, yeah, now that I know everyone's working through it. So, um, one last question unless someone pops one in there um i know i've seen different color paramounts uh, people have asked about different color paramounts is that something that you guys do custom or how do you approach because there's obviously all black a lot of people are like the military version um but i didn't know you know how you guys approach the custom stuff well we um in the past we've, we've done a bit of it but i i tell you what it's um it's extremely expensive and not because the different colors of anodized or dyes, you know, cost anything different. It's just trying to set apart one of each of parts, you know, um, rather than sending, let's say, all the knobs down to get them black anodized to hold off a certain number and then wait until you get a complete unanodized mount and then send it down there and have it um, anodized a particular color, color is very difficult. Um, you know, but, but yeah, we have done some. Kevin's got one of the one of only two clear anodized mighties out there, um, and we've done. I think we did a orange. It was like orange and green for a college Florida. I don't know who that would be, but I can't remember. That was um, the Florida Gators. I think yeah. I saw that one. That, and I thought it was hideous, but you know, I mean, it's uh, that's what they wanted, and uh, we did it. So more power to you. So. Yeah. Um, last question. Uh, again, if you want to dive into this, I think most of us know the answer, but what is the most popular line? What's the most popular mountain in your lineup? It's the mighty, you know, it's the, the, the least expensive is generally going to sell the most. Um, but, uh, 
the MX is a close second. So, I mean, those two, uh, you know, the ME, um, anyway, the, the ME, there's like, uh, I'm trying to remember what, where we ended up. I think, anyway, there's close to a couple thousand MEs around the world. So, um, of the two different versions, the original version and the, the existing version. So, there's a lot, you know, the, the, we were shipping those for a lot more years than the others. Um, but, you know, we've got thousands of mounts out there and um, it's, it's, it's a challenging thing. I mean, there's, um, we're involved on a day-to-day -day basis in trying to debug systems um, for, for all those customers when, there, when there's a problem. Um, but we've learned a lot about observatories and software and, you know, the kind of things that can go, go wrong. Well, that's, that's what, that's what you need. So yeah, the, as I thought, Paramount Mighty, if you've never seen one, check one out. They're very, very nice. Um, but yeah, well, Steve, it's, it's that time. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. I know you're really busy. Thanks for sticking in with us while we put up with all the technical junk, but, uh, as a, like you said, as a programmer, I, I know you understand when it comes to computers, not wanting to work with each other. So, um, thanks for being cool. Um, all of you guys watching, if you have any other questions, you can always shoot, go over to BISC's website and check that out. Um, but thanks very much for spending your Friday morning with us. Have a good weekend. Uh, Steve, same to you and all the, the BISC brothers. So, you know, tell them all. From, I say hi, especially Tom. So, um, but yeah, have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you very much. Uh, big thanks to, to Steve. And uh, we will, uh, ugh, can't talk. We'll see you guys next uh, Friday for What's Up in the Nighttime Sky for October. So, thanks very much. Take care, everyone, and have a good one. Thanks, Bye. Steve. Yeah. See ya.